Hello everyone, this is Emil Kalinowski. I was reading the Wall Street Journal recently and I came across an opinion column about everyone's favorite bugaboo, inflation. So I pick up the phone in a manner of speaking and ask Jeff, Jeff Snyder, head of global research at Alhambra Partners. Jeff, what do you think of these ideas? Should inflation include such things as housing, other asset price inflation? Has this topic come up before? And of course, Jeff informed me, and hopefully you, that this is, a, this is a topic of discussion that's been on economists' minds for a very long time. What should be included in the calculation? Speculative ventures? Productive investment? All transactions? Let's get to it right now. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Snyder reacting to an opinion column in the Wall Street Journal. Oh my lord, let's get to John Hilson Rath's article right now. Wall Street Journal posted February 21st and it's about inflation and what should be in inflation and that thing that isn't in inflation, who's responsible for keeping an eye on it? You'll see what we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen. Here we go. So the Federal Reserve predicates its easy money policies in part on the fact that its favorite measure of inflation has run more than half a percentage point below its goal for several years. With inflation several so years. low. <laughs> yeah, so, several well, years? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. Several and, years. <laughs> well, that's well, my I question, mean, hey, Jeff. If you start out the article with accommodative monetary policy, you want to downplay the fact that it's been accommodative for more than a decade and the uh, they've undershot their target for the vast majority of that decade because <laughs> then you start thinking well if it's accommodative why isn't why don't we have the inflation right so we don't know what the real the the number is when we say few several it's squishy i always thought few was like three several might be four to five but it's really stretching it to say 10 right that's Several yeah, I think from my own recollection, because I, I, you know, going back to 2009, out of the 100 and almost 30 months, they've been short or they've met the, the, the 2% target or exceeded it in 20 of those. So I think the success rate is down around 20%. So one out of five months over the last more than decade, they've been able to reach 2%. So that's not quite what I, you know, raises lots of questions here, which I think is the, the point. With inflation so low for so long, the thinking goes the Fed can hold interest rates very low while for a while to help boost the economy as it recovers from the effects of the coronavirus pandemic. This raises I gotta stop you again. I, I mean, know, look, again, I it's I know you knew exactly what I was gonna say, right? It's hey, maybe holding rates low, maybe they're not holding rates low, and maybe low rates are not stimulus or accommodative. I mean especially when we have a length of time that's almost a decade. It's really, I mean, right from the prep, all these premises that are, are coming at you right in the uh, introduction, you know, that's why he's being careful with his wording because even he realizes mm, something's not right here. We, we, maybe we have the order wrong. This raises an important question. And when I was reading that, I was thinking to myself, yes, it does, but not the one you're thinking. <laughs> not the question you're going to ask. <laughs> No offense to Mr. Hilsenrath, of course. Is the central bank thinking about inflation properly? The Fed defines its inflation target in terms of consumer prices, such as those as we pay for cars, toothpaste, and haircuts. Well, some of us get haircuts. But in recent decades, 
prices have often climbed much faster for the investment assets, such as homes and stocks, and twice led to booms and busts followed by recessions. Now we're going to talk about assets. Low rates are intended to spur borrowing, spending, and investment, supporting economic growth and hiring. As society has become more affluent, more resources have gone into assets like stocks, bonds, and second homes. Perhaps not coincidentally, two of the last three U.S. recessions were driven by asset price bubbles, a tech stock boom in the late 90s and a housing price boom in the 2000s that caused economic imbalances, even though consumer prices made barely a peep. Cheap imports from abroad, among other global forces, might be holding down U.S. consumer prices while asset prices march higher, creating new risks that could sideline the economy in unexpected ways. Now we're going to transition and talk about housing. It is easy to find reasons for discomfort. The S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index is up 9.5%. Homes are particularly thorny. They provide a service, we live in them, that is measured in official consumer price indexes. They are also the most valuable asset in the investment portfolios of many households. The investment part isn't measured in these inflation indexes. Rather than track actual home prices, the indexes estimate housing costs based on rent paid in big cities. With COVID-19 decimating commerce in cities, in cities and people leaving, no wonder the Labor Department's official measure of rental housing costs in the past year rose just 2%, while home prices nationally were up at nearly five times that rate. In 2004 and 5, as the housing bubble grew, the Labor Department measure of rents averaged gains of a little more than 2% annually. Jeff, should oh, yeah, uh, I think we're getting into the definitions of inflation, right? Mm -hmm. what, what he's talking about here is two different forms of inflation, or at least what he's alleging are two different forms of inflation, which gets back to the whole, what is inflation? What we've talked about inflation before, what we say is it's a broad-based sustained increase in the level of prices, right? So we're just talking about the housing market. What he's already admitting is that, look, one segment of the housing market is doing really well. If you can get a mortgage, or if you have cash, you're fine. And so you can get, you can go out and buy a house. And the, in fact, there are a lot of people are doing that. People who are doing well are buying lots of houses. That's actually happening. But there's this other segment, which I would argue is, I think it's not even arguable, which is a much larger segment of the population that is not doing well. If you look at the, 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 uh, the trend in prices of rents, they're moving in the exact opposite direction as our home prices themselves. So what we're seeing is bifurcation in the economy because the level of economic growth overall is inconsistent with the inflationary idea, which is a broad-based sustained increase in prices across lots of lots of, most of the economy, right? So we have people who are doing well are always going to do well. They're buying houses right now. People who are, are not doing well, they can't even afford the rent. So that's not an inflationary signal whatsoever. And you have to put those two things together to say, if it was inflationary, both segments would be doing relatively well. We'd see consistent data where they're both going, prices of rents are going up in, as well as the prices of houses, because often the price of a house or the price of an apartment community 
will dictate the, the cost of renting, right? Those two things should be linked together. So the fact that we're seeing them moving in the opposite direction already proposes the fact that not quite inflationary, more idiosyncratic factors than anything else. Thank you, Jeff. That was that was really important. Thank you. Now he's transitioning to a discussion on asset price bubbles. With stable consumer prices, no, while stable consumer prices are the primary focus of monetary policy, asset prices are the domain of regulators. Monetary policy should not be the first line of defense against the stabilizing asset price booms, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said at a press conference last September. Raising rates to tame asset bubbles, he said, could be a secondary reaction. One of the lessons of the past two asset price booms was that it was hard to identify the bubble while it was inflating and even harder to stop it without creating collateral economic damage. Well, I don't just to interrupt. I mean, that's that's what central bankers always say, going back to Greenspan, even before him, is that asset bubbles, while they, while they may exist, we don't know about them until after the fact. I'm not saying I agree with that position, but that's the official position is that you don't know an asset bubble is an asset bubble until it bursts, which kind of complicates monetary policy and complicates life in general, especially if you think, well, there was an asset bubble, don't really know where it came from, and we don't know about it until after it becomes a big issue. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that part, at least from my readings of what Richard Vague wrote in his tour through history. One of the key takeaways, one of his final ultimate takeaways was that these are unmissable. They are, you won't miss it if you're looking for it. And uh, when it comes at least to housing in the United States and around the world, I know for a fact that the BIS, the Bank for International Settlements, had come up with its early warning indicators regarding credit growth being well above trend and into a danger zone in the early 2000s. And across the world, including in the United States, alarm bells were going off before the, you know, 2008. They were going off. Yeah, but remember, economists, they work according, you know, DSG models assume rational expectations. And rational expectations says that the market today is right. It is. It has absorbed all the information that exists. It's all being traded. And so today, if the prices are high, then we assume, according to rational expectations, there's a legitimate reason for prices to be high. And if a bubble collapses, that means there must be new information that introduced that was introduced. Again, I'm not agreeing with that. This is the official view. This is the orthodox economics view of how these things go, that markets are rational and therefore, you can't really tell there's a bubble until the market gets its own new information that collapses the previous price regime. Remember, this goes back to, you know, long time to, you know, random walk statistics and all these other kinds of things. So if you believe in rational expectations, you can understand why central bankers would take the view they do, which is we can't tell a bubble until afterward because the market rationally is not in a bubble until after it decides it is. It is just that circular. It's just that kind of ridiculous. Well, if markets are rational, I invite our central bankers to wade through a Reddit uh, thread at uh, Wall Street Bets. Okay, let me continue here with the final paragraph, a rhetorical flourish to take us home. Nancy Davis, founder of Quadratic Capital, a $1.5 billion investment management fund. She's been on Real Vision a few times. I love those interviews. Very good. 
notes that in swap markets, where companies hedge inflation and interest rate risk, firms are pricing inflation in the two to 10 year horizon at about 1% a year, even further below the Fed's target. The market might be complacent, she said, or it might be saying that the risk of a pickup in inflation is no more serious than the risk of falling consumer prices known as deflation. Nobody knows what's going to happen, she said, especially the economists. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And that's one of the things I think, you know, we, we talked about or we wanted to talk about is that, you know, we look at the tips market. Even the tips market has said, yeah, oil prices, stock, commodity prices are up, but we're not really sure they're going to stay up. Uh, we see what I called an inversion in the tip yield where shorter term inflation break evens have gone much higher than longer term inflation rate expectations, which is the market basically saying, look, yes, oil prices are up. Yes, copper prices are up. And that's going to impact consumer prices a little bit in the short run. But over the long run, we're not seeing anything that's different just yet. And so I think the other part of what Mr. Hilsenrath was talking about was Okay, yeah, consumer prices, I get that. But what about asset prices? And that's really something that economists and even just the discipline of economics has struggled with for a very, very long time. If you think back to somebody like Simon Newcomb, for example, in his Principles of Political Economy, where he came up with what he called the, uh, the I think it was called the equation of societary circulation, which is the precursor form of the equation of exchange. You know, he wasn't really sure what to put in it. Because when he says, when he stopped and he looked at you, have money, you have velocity, then you have the economy and prices, but money is also used for speculative purposes, right? So if there's lots of money, maybe it doesn't go into the real economy, maybe it goes into speculative markets. Should we put that in our, in our equation? And what he said is, no, we don't. In fact, he excluded, excluded all borrowing from, uh, and all borrowing and lending from his Soci equation of societary circulation, whereas Irving Fisher, who came after Simon Newcomb, came up with the equation of exchange, even dedicated the chapter in his book to Simon, said, you know, his original equation of exchange wasn't P times Q, it was P times T, which was all transactions, including financial transactions. So there, he kind of swung in, the, swung in the other direction where he said, maybe we should include financial transactions. So there has been a debate about inflation, money, prices, the relationship between all these things going way, way back. And I don't think it's ever really been settled. Do we include asset markets in inflation? And if we do, how do they get there? And what I would argue is what we're seeing in the stock market, as we said, the housing market, the housing market is idiosyncratic because it's not a broad-based housing shelter thing. We see rent prices falling. And I've argued in the past, the stock market, especially this cycle, post-2008, isn't a monetary phenomenon, so it's not a monetary credit-driven bubble, so much as is a psychological bubble where people want to buy stocks, they want to hold stocks, the financial services industry certainly wants to hold stocks. And so what you have is this psychological impact from expectations policy, not money policy. Jeff, I loved it. This was excellent. If anyone wants to read more about the tips inversion, as you call it, uh, they can go to Alhambra Partners blog and they can look for an article called Some Important Tips on Inverted Tips. And it was posted on the 23rd of February. Jeff, thank you very much. And I will talk to you again later. Look forward to it, Emil. Making more sense, extra sense. Jeff Snyder 
head of global research at Alhambra Partners. Uh, we're going to talk about an article that I read. I'm going to read it to you live. You haven't read it yet. We'll see what your reaction is. This one is by uh, John Hilsenrath. No, John, I'm going to, I can't, I can't do that. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, no, I, I messed up. It I messed was good. up. You were, you were doing fine. Was I? I yeah. But I killed his name. Hils, I got it right. <laughs> Who am oh, I? That's why I was wondering what you were doing. You had it fine. <laughs> You know, professionals have a way to end the show. Uh, a sign-off, they call it. Right. It's been like a year. I still don't have a sign-off. I don't know how to end the show. You could be like Walter Cronkite. That's the way it was. Something yeah, like yeah. that. That's how it's supposed to be done. Yeah, we're not professionals, though. Not yet. <laughs> we're getting there, though. <laughs>